Let us begin with an Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, followed by our continued reading through the book of Acts. We will be in chapter 13 today, beginning at verse 13. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray as we come before you, needy men and women, boys and girls, we pray, Lord God, that you would be hallowed in the hearts of your people, that you would rest upon us with the weight of your glory in measure to our ability to receive and give us more than we are able in our own selves, Lord, to muster, to commune with you in such a weighty fellowship. So, Lord, we pray that you would indeed sustain us in union with Christ by your Holy Spirit so that we would recognize your voice, recognize your presence, that we would indeed give you glory and honor, which is your due, and that we would be blessed having drawn near as you draw near to us now to speak to us. We pray, Father God, that we would have ears to hear, hearts to believe, wills to obey, and that we would go away rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13 through 25. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it, and for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. 
And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is God's word. There are people in our country who will only be happy being Christian if they can be Christian in America. Take them out of America and they quickly lose all interest in Christianity. America is the primary reason some people are willing to identify as Christian. If these people woke up tomorrow in a third world country and learned they would never be leaving it, they would abandon the Christian faith. They would adopt whatever local way of life was needed to get by and survive. Which means when they think about being Christian in America, it is not the Christian part they think about. It is the America part. Many people are drawn to the the cultural fight they see Christians engaged in, in this country, and so they think of themselves as Christians too, because they see the country as the ultimate cause for the fight. But they are really, these folks, they are really looking through Christianity, like through a window, to focus on something beyond it, America. And ultimately, they are like many of the Jews, whom Paul preached to again and again as he journeyed through the cities of Asia Minor. Many Jews whom Paul met had an initial interest in Christianity, as long as they thought there was a version of it that was good for the earthly nation of Israel. If if Christianity could revitalize interest in the Jewish ceremonial law, if Christianity could revitalize Jewish temple worship, if Christianity could revitalize honor for the Jewish priesthood, if Christianity could do these things, then many Jews would bend over backward to fit it in. They would cautiously accept it as another renewal movement for the good of national Israel. But something kept happening. The Jews kept discovering that the Christianity preached by the apostles was not going to help renew national Israel. Even so, a few Jews, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, became lifelong followers of Christ because they began desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. But many other Jews became jealous and angry, and violent when they discovered that Christianity, the the Christianity of the apostles, would not be renewing national Israel. In fact, that jealousy, that anger, that violence is how Paul's first visit to Pisidian Antioch comes to an end. In Acts 13, beginning at verse 13, we enter upon Paul's first recorded public sermon. And it doesn't end well. We'll get to the end in the weeks ahead, but we learn at verse 50 
that after Paul preached two Sabbath days in this city, the Jews stirred up persecution against him and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Now, if you think Paul should have coddled them, if you think Paul should have tried harder to make the Jews feel that Christianity was no threat to their love of national Israel, well, then you are going to be very surprised because Paul does the opposite of coddle. He knows an idol when he sees it, even if it's dressed in national garb, even if it's dressed in the garb of national Israel. Paul goes in the opposite direction and boldly disappoints them even more. In verse 46, he says to the angry Jews of Antioch, quote, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That was a shocking word for Jews to hear from a man of such stature as Paul. Paul would be turning to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul would be offering the salvation of Yahweh, the salvation of Israel's God. He would be offering it to all non-Jewish nations in the world and not offering it any longer to Israel. Which means the message of the apostles would not glorify one special nation. And we should not be surprised because the head of the apostles, the head of the Christian church, Jesus himself said, not one stone will be left upon another. He foretold them as the prophet of prophets that Rome would come and decimate their city and that God would not protect it. The message of the apostles would not glorify one special nation. It would not glorify Israel. It would go to all nations. Why? To glorify one Lord, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. And the Jews should have known this. They should have even desired this. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says to his servant son, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. They should have known. One nation was never enough to contain the glory of God's Son as the servant who mediates salvation for sinful man. That should have been Israel's greatest selling bumper sticker. One nation is never enough. But they ended up on the exact opposite. So when Christ came into the world, he did not come preaching the kingdom of national Israel. Neither do his apostles. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, and so did his apostles. Mark records Jesus' preaching this way. Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, 
and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus did not come to coach the Jews back into national prosperity. He did not come to coach them back to national independence. He did not come to give men more of the earth. He came to give us title to heaven. He came to die for our sin. He came to give repentance and faith to us. Isn't that what he preached? Repent and believe. That which he commands is that which he gives to the elect. He came to bring sinful people into the saving rule of God. He came to fulfill the promise of God. A promise so great, a salvation so great for sinners that God himself was coming to dwell among them, in them, and rule them by grace and truth through his indwelling spirit. His kingdom is about deliverance from sin, from sin's penalty through forgiveness, from sin's power through regeneration. And his saving rule does not just deliver from, it delivers unto. All whom he saves from sin, he brings unto himself because he himself is the reward, not some earthly piece of dirt. He himself is the reward. The reward is not a temporary earthly glory of a nation, but the eternal heavenly glory of God. As Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, compared to the weighty reward of God himself, the nations of the earth are, quote, like a drop from a bucket. They are dust on the scales, the Lord says. You want that reward? You want an earthly reward? You want dust from the scale? The Lord offers you himself. So the apostles are sent into the world to preach the same message our Lord Jesus Christ preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. The saving rule of God has arrived in Jesus Christ. It is a message that does not draw people to glory more and more in an earthly nation. This message draws people to glory more and more in the eternal country, the city of God, where Christ is on the throne, and from where he has poured out his spirit on all who believe, keeping them fixated now on the things that are above, where neither moth nor rust destroy. And so for this reason, we must give very special attention to the opening words of verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. Do we see how significant those words are in light of what we saw last Sunday? Because they simply reveal but profoundly reveal that Paul did not stay in Paphos. He did not buy a modular home there. He did not build a tiny home there. He did not build a mansion there. He did not seek employment there. Paul set sail from Paphos. Why is that so important? 
But we've been picking on the Jews a bit, the unbelieving Jews. Let's pick on the Gentiles a bit. Verse 13 is so important because of who had his headquarters in Paphos. Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, who according to verse 12 had just become a Christian under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But Paul refuses to set up any kind of home base in the house of Sergius. Paul does not stay and exploit the new faith in Christ of Sergius Paulus in order to Christianize an important city. Paul does not ask for the job previously held by Elamis the magician, who is now unemployed and blind. Paul does not seek that job for himself, not for Barnabas, not for John Mark. None of them join the governor's staff as Christian influencers and counselors. All three of them leave. Why? Why does Paul set sail from Paphos? Because the Apostle Paul knows what we should all come to know, that the politics of the kingdom of God are not the same as the politics of the kingdoms of men. They never have been. They never will be. The late Edmund Clowney wisely said that so much of earthly politics is, quote, man's allegiance to the possible in a random universe, hoping for some hidden utopian future. But that is not how the politics of the kingdom of God work. You see, it is God who brings his kingdom upon men. Ready or not, he brings it. Ready or not, Sergius Paulus, the morning upon which he was visited by Paul and Barnabas, signing papers, thinking perhaps deep thoughts from from Pliny and Seneca and other great Roman thinkers. Maybe I put one of them alive too soon. But there he is doing his work. And that night, the kingdom of God falls upon him like an unexpected storm, like an unexpected refreshing shower like an unexpected midnight dawning of the sun. The kingdom of God does not wait for any man. It does not come by the ambitions of man. It is not established by the work of man. God does it. It is his kingdom. It is even named after him, the kingdom of God. He is its king. He establishes it where and when he pleases, and he establishes it by the foolish means of preaching the cross of Christ. Christ opens the kingdom to whomever he pleases, and he shuts it wherever he wishes. Which means Christianity cannot be revived by linking it to man's political hopes. So Paul sets sail. From Paphos, the kingdom of God does not need an earthly nation to prosper. Yes, we know Christianity can prosper by state provisions. It has. But we also know Christianity has degenerated under state protection. 
We know it has. So we are free to leave all things to God and let him order his kingdom as he pleases, whether it's under persecution or under prosperity. Well, then, if Paul comes preaching the kingdom of God, as Jesus did, and not the kingdom of national Israel, why does Paul first go to a Jewish synagogue when he arrives in Pisidian Antioch? And why does Paul, in his first sermon there, give an account of the great events of Israel's history? This opening section of the sermon seems awfully focused on national Israel, or is it? Well, the answer to these questions has everything to do with Israel's purpose in the world. Israel, Israel as a nation was to be first among nations. First among the nations in imaging to the world what a people looked like when God made his dwelling among men, bringing his gracious salvation with him. Israel was to be like a water pipe, hand crafted by God himself with a narrow shape to carry with power the refreshing waters of salvation to the nations of the world. But Israel often clogged that pipe themselves. They clogged it with the cement of ethnic pride. They clogged it with the cement of religious arrogance, especially circumcision. Oh, they loved their circumcision so much that Paul finally had to say to them, why don't you just mutilate yourself? You love that so much. Why don't you cut more off, was his point. They clogged that pipe with the cement of social seclusion. They walked an extra wide berth around Samaria. So this is why Paul first seeks out the Jews in the synagogue on a Sabbath Saturday at Pisidian Antioch. As God first came to the Jews when he created them as a nation, the apostles first come to them upon the occasion of the new creation. Paul intends to give them an opportunity to renew their purpose in the world by hearing that their promised Savior has come. But will they believe it? Will they believe the good news? Because to embrace Christ, the people of Israel must stop looking for an earthly glory to come again upon their nation. This is the whole burden of the book of Hebrews, by the way. To embrace Christ, they must instead rest their eyes, rest their souls on a better glory, an unfading glory, an eternal glory the heavenly glory of God in Christ crucified and Christ risen and Christ enthroned and Christ coming again to judge the world and create a new heaven and a new earth. That's glory. But so many in Israel were willing to trade it all away if they could just have more bread. Remember, they wanted to make Jesus king, right? But why? so that he would be one of these machines in the office that just cranked out loaves of bread for not even putting a quarter in, just for looking at it, because he had given them bread to eat. They chased him around the Sea of Galilee 
to make him king. They wanted an earthly glory, the glory of the stomach, the glory of the pocketbook, the glory of the military arm. They were willing to have that because they had no flavor for the eternal glory of God's Redeemer. Would they believe Paul's message? Look what he does as he opens this sermon. Look what he does in verses 17 through 25 to help them. That's what he's doing. He's helping them. He carefully narrates their history in these verses to help them, to peel their eyes from their national lusting. He preaches their own national history, but did you notice how he did it? He does not tell them what great things they have done. He tells them over and over again what great things God has done. Everything he has to say about their national history in verses 17 through 25, he says by saying, and then God gave you this, and then God did this for you, and then God gave you this, and then God did this for you. He tells them their history that way because that is how they should tell themselves their history. Verse 17, God chose their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also, verse 17, God made the people of Israel great while they lived in Egypt. Also, verse 17, God led them out of Egypt and out of slavery. Verse 18, God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. Such a parental expression. They sinned and grumbled for 40 years, but God put up with them. He didn't forsake them. Verse 19, God destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. Not Joshua, not Caleb. God destroyed those seven nations. And God gave them the promised land. Verse 20, God gave them judges while they were languishing under their ignorance and rebellious spirit. Verse 21, God gave them Saul as their first king, the kind of king they had asked for. Verse 22, then God raised up a much better king for them, David, the kind of king they didn't ask for. Verse 23, and lastly, God brought to Israel the very thing all the other things were pointing to and promising. God gave to Israel the promised Savior, Jesus the king of kings. What is Paul's point in laying things out this way? His point is this. Israel, you were never great. Israel, you were never great. Stop telling yourself you are great. Only the saving acts of God are great. Only God is great. If the Jews got the point, they would talk about their own national history in the, in the exact same cadence and word choice that Paul does. So the purpose of God for Israel was not for the nation of Israel to become great and glorious in the eyes of the people of Israel. That was not God's purpose for them. But that's what happened. The plan was for God to become great and glorious 
in the eyes of Israel, the great Redeemer God, the great and steadfast love God, this great slow to anger God. Beloved, when you think about your Christian life, do you narrate it to your soul in these terms? Or do you narrate to your soul the things that you have done? God did it. And this is why verse 25 suddenly becomes so immensely important in Paul's preaching. The words of John the Baptist. Listen, what John the Baptist said to the people of Israel in his day as he was about to die, what he said to the people of Israel is exactly what the people of Israel should have been saying to all the nations. Take John's words and put them, if you will, in a collective voice, a congregational voice, a national voice of Israel, even the voice of the church today. This is what we have to say. What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming. We would say one has come. No, but behold, after me, one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is a brilliantly shrewd statement by John the Baptist and brilliantly quoted here by Paul. Do you see its shrewdness? It plays on the conceit of the nation of Israel. Do you think you as a nation know what greatness looks like? Do you think you know which years, which king made you great? Do you think you would know what greatness would look like if it returned to you, if the Romans were booted out and you had your land back? Do you think you know what greatness is? John was great, Jesus said, in the kingdom. But anyone who believed in Jesus was greater, the Lord said. You see, John recognized that greatness is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the Virgin Mary, wearing the sandals of a man walking on the filth of the earth. Listen carefully, beloved. You recognize no greatness at all if you do not recognize the greatness of Christ incarnate, the king, the eternal king, come to redeem sinful man by walking under their curse in their cursed land. You have no ability to recognize greatness if you cannot see how great is the foot, the dirty foot of Jesus Christ. You might think, boy, that man is a great Christian because he fill in the blank. Jesus is greater. Which brings us to this question then. Why does one so great, the eternal God of the heavens, have sandals on his feet? Well, this is the testimony to his greatness, isn't it? He has sandals on his feet because he is not ashamed 
to call the sin-sick, earth-bound, earth-cursed children of God his brothers. So he becomes like them. He dons, meaning puts on, he puts on their flesh through the incarnation and becomes born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might walk the earth and give all the obedience due unto his father from men, give it in our stead, in our place. He loves everyone he meets with a perfect love. He never speaks a sinful word. He is without trespass. He is without sin. And he is the man of ultimate greatness. And that dirt that he collects on his foot follows him to the cross where it becomes a mountain of death under which he is buried, a grave under which he is buried. And his greatness is that he does not complain to be so humiliated by the filth of other people, even though he is the one who has created them and all their allegiance and love is due him. He bears it. Beloved, let me challenge you today. Return to the politics of the kingdom of God. Here it is. What are the politics of the kingdom of God? The adoration of the greatness of the king. The love of the greatness of the king. The eagerness for the eternal heavenly kingdom of the king. The desire to be and imitate the king. There is no other definition of greatness but that which you find here in the words of John the Baptist. The politics of the kingdoms of men are necessary to us Christians as clothing is necessary. But you are sick. You are sick with a deep sickness if you go home at night and take off your sport coat and hang it on a hanger and then bow down before it and start a litany, a liturgy of praise to its fine silken woven handcuffs. And you carry pictures of that sport coat in your pocket. And you show it to other people. And it consumes your waking heart to anger and jealousy and rage. You are sick if that sport coat has become anything else to you than a temporary fading tool by which you engage to give true exaltation to true greatness, Jesus Christ. Politics in the kingdoms of men are the sport coat. You have to wear it, but don't worship it. It isn't great. Let us pray. Jesus, you are great. You are beautiful. You alone are wise. You alone are righteous. You alone are truth. You alone, Lord Jesus, are life and the way. You are king of kings. Your kingdom is not of this world. 
you told Pilate and told the church. If it was of this world, your disciples would fight. Because it is not of this world, your disciples are called to proclaim, to evangelize, to pray, to believe, to obey, to suffer. Oh Lord, keep us from worshiping and adoring things that are so less than great. And Lord, protect our hearts especially from the same national lust we found in the hearts of many Jews. For their country was special under Moses. And Lord, we greatly sin against you to elevate our own country as some new Israel. Let us see the church of Jesus Christ as the true Israel of God, a heavenly people. Give us ears and hearts to believe our apostle when he says, do not be earthly minded, but set your mind on things above in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and so you in him. And gracious Lord, we pray that we would be truly useful to men as they find in us liberation, freedom from the very idols and lusts that consume them. May we have a ready word in season and out to give praise, to give honor, to give glory to he whose sandals we are not worthy to untie. But even so, he has come and taken sandals because we who are unworthy were the subjects, the object of his love, that he became what we were so that we might become what he is, children of God, sons of the Most High, daughters of the Most High. Let us give testimony to the world of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.